Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Chicago, Illinois, the Windy City. It's home to some of America's greatest professional sports teams, along with the world-famous Deep Dish Pizza and several historical landmarks, such as the Willis, previously known as the Sears Tower. Chicago is the third most populated city in the United States, an intermingling melting pot of born and bred residents, travelers, and transplants alike. To give you an idea of just how vast the number of visitors and occupants of this truly unique city stretches, Chicago happens to be one of six major metropolitan areas in the country that have more than one commercial airport. With so many people in one place, it's easy to get lost if you don't know your way around. Chicago would also be the perfect place to blend in, to camouflage one's entire existence and to hide in plain sight if one so chose to. What would be an even more efficient way to disguise, say, one's double life would be if an individual residing in this city happened to be someone like a highly accomplished educator. If there's one thing we've learned in researching these cases here at Invisible Choir, and a fact that you've surely picked up on by now as a listener, it's that perpetrators of heinous crimes are never limited to social class, accolades, or a particular profession. Violent offenders are everywhere. They can quite literally be among us at any moment, even as you're currently enjoying this episode right now. And if they were, most likely, you'd never be the wiser. That is, unless you happened to become a target. With internet speeds accelerating and improving by the second, it's easier now more than ever for criminals to connect with other like-minded individuals who share the same interests, shall we say. This is the story of a man who on the surface was not only unsuspecting, but was pleasant and loved by nearly everyone who knew him. What his friends and colleagues would soon discover, however, is that they never truly knew this man at all. We all have skeletons in our closets, some more than others. How the bones get there, well, that's something that has to be examined on a case-by-case basis. But when 43-year-old microbiologist Wyndham Willoughby Latham became too comfortable behind the guise of his successful career, he'd eventually slip up blurring the lines of his sexual fantasies, BDSM, online thought crime, and ultimately, murder. Wyndham Latham was born August 10, 1974. He was always very studious, even as a young man. It became evident early on by family, teachers, and his fellow classmates that Latham was highly intelligent and that he seamlessly excelled throughout his academic career. The young man with great promise would certainly live up to all of his scholarly expectations, eventually enrolling in the private liberal arts institution of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1992. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in biology, Latham began his position as a research technician at Rockefeller University in New York City. It's here where Latham would learn from the best of the best, working in the laboratory of renowned American biologist James E. Darnell Jr. from 1996 to 1998. After gaining two crucial and valuable years of experience in his field, 
Wyndham decided to continue his path of higher education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he would go on to earn a PhD in microbiology, graduating in 2003. Immediately following graduate school, Latham hit the ground running, entering a postdoctoral program at Washington University's School of Medicine in St. Louis. During his tenure, Latham would be taken under the wing of Bill Goldman, now the current chair of microbiology and immunology at the University of North Carolina. During their professional experiences together from 2003 to 2007, Goldman described Latham as highly ambitious, very competitive, and greatly respected for his attention to detail regarding the high quality of his extensive research. It was clear Wyndham Latham was well on his way to becoming one of the world's leading contributors in his respective field of scientific studies, and that's precisely who he would inevitably become. In January of 2008, Latham accepted a position as an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the prestigious Northwestern University, located just outside of Chicago's city limits. To provide a more thorough breakdown of what exactly it was Latham was teaching over at the college, his LinkedIn page, which is still active, offers up the following information. My research focuses on the mechanisms by which pathogenic bacteria cause disease in humans, using Yersinia species as models to understand the nature of host-pathogen interaction during respiratory lung infections. My group also studies how these bacteria regulate the synthesis of factors required to cause disease at the post-transcriptional level, with an emphasis on small, non-coding RNAs and the protein chaperones that enable their diverse and many functions. So, for those of us who aren't scientists, in layman's terms, Latham basically studied bacteria. His expertise was in examining their origin, how they can develop into diseases, and how those diseases can ultimately spread. The most notable amongst his research was his comprehension of the Yersinia family, the pathogen solely responsible for the bubonic plague or Black Death, which killed millions of people throughout Europe and Asia during the late 17th century outbreak. Here is Wyndham Latham speaking at a conference in 2011, where he presented recent findings from his research to fellow scientists, who had traveled from all parts of the globe, coming together to learn from the Northwestern professor, who at this time was at the top of his game. So uh, just to summarize, we can start with uh, bacteria not knowing anything about small RNAs. We can use uh, advanced deep sequencing techniques and uh, with the help of collaborators, go from millions of sequencing reads to clusters that then leads to small RNAs. We can uh, identify information about differences between the species through other techniques such as northern blots. We can then take these small RNAs and put them through mouse models, identify the targets, and then in addition to looking at differences between the species, this might also help determine new virulence factors, which is what we're most interested in. The entire seminar is roughly 45 minutes long, and he sounds like a pretty nice guy throughout, right? And with a middle name like Willoughby, how couldn't he be? But if you're curious as to why we were so surprised to learn that this man's LinkedIn page is still active, you'll understand the reasoning in just a moment. For now, let's listen to a different clip of Latham speaking at a separate conference, this time years later in Lithuania in 2016. Here, Latham had been invited to discuss the cutting-edge results of his scientific discoveries, filling yet another stadium-style seating lecture hall. The capacity of guests for his recitation are in full attendance. There was literally not an empty seat in the house. 
and the title of his presentation, the irony of which has yet to be revealed, read in bold letters across the screen behind him, from mild to murderous. So, Yersinia pestis, based on the archaeological record, was fully competent to cause pneumonic plague, and we've demonstrated that uh, experimentally in the laboratory. Additional work that we were not a part of, but was published very nicely and he'll tell us about, is uh, how some of the genetic elements that were required to cause flea-borne transmission came later. So, what we are proposing is pneumonic plague came first, uh, a primary pneumonic plague came first, uh, before the ability of Yersinia pestis to be transmitted by fleas. So I think what's wonderful is that we can take the archaeological record, we can test it experimentally in our animal model, and we can determine what are the important changes in uh, the evolution of bacterial pathogens, and then we, can we use that to understand how species develop and how diseases are caused and spread. And so I'll uh, just end by thanking the people in the lab, our collaborators that we've, we've worked with, um, and also our funding. I'm currently at Northwestern, but I'm actually relocating the lab to the Institut Pasteur in Paris in January, so I will be one of you European shortly. So. In this roughly 30-minute seminar, Latham can be seen on camera smiling, excitedly engaging with his peers, and speaking eloquently. In an inviting and warm tone, Latham commands the room of his fellow researchers. The affable and seemingly likable professor ends the disquisition proudly by announcing his future plans to work with the Institut Pasteur, a highly regarded laboratory in Paris, France. This was Latham's dream job, a position he'd strove to achieve nearly his entire career. Immediately following this conference, however, for some reason, friends and co-workers of the starry-eyed Wyndham Latham began to notice a change in the professor's demeanor. Wyndham's outwardly enthusiastic personality began to deteriorate, and the man who seemed to have the world in the palm of his hand would gradually become more and more withdrawn from just about everyone around him. Depression is a strange thing. It can creep up on you at any moment. Oftentimes, those struggling the most tend to suffer alone in silence, bottling up their emotions so as not to impose their problems on anyone else. From 2016 through 2017, Wyndham Latham seemed to be going through this exact experience, unbeknownst to any of his friends or colleagues. Latham put a face on every day as a professor at the Northwestern sector of the Feinberg School of Medicine. Yet, in private, he was grappling with several inner demons that he never exposed on the surface. It's around this time that Latham, a 42-year-old openly gay man, began dating a much younger man, 25-year-old hairstylist Trenton Cornell Duranlo. The two met on a dating app called Grinder, an online space geared toward gay, bi, and trans individuals seeking romantic encounters and partnership. It's unclear how serious the relationship between Wyndham and Trent was, but Latham continued to use the application, seeking relations with other men throughout 2016 and 2017. Within this same time frame, Latham's depression reached a worrisome level to the point at which he became suicidal. Although almost no one was aware of it during this period, including his boyfriend Trenton, there was one man who did know Latham's secret, a man named Andrew Warren. Andrew Warren was also plagued with his own thoughts of suicide, the largest difference between the two men being their physical distance between one another, 
as Warren resided roughly 4,000 miles across the pond in England. Warren also happened to work in higher education, serving as the senior treasury assistant in charge of payroll and pensions for Oxford University. When the two men met in an online chat room, Latham and Warren naturally connected in their shared and coincidental occupations at their respective universities. As the conversation grew and their relationship developed, they quickly learned that this wasn't the only similarity they shared in common. Latham and Warren also shared an interest in BDSM, an acronym used to describe variants of bondage, discipline, dominance, submission, sadomasochism, and masochism implemented during sex. And while this roleplay-driven form of erotica is widely common, Latham and Warren's predicament was a bit different than the norm. They soon revealed to one another that both of their sexual fantasies consisted of much more than just whips, chains, or handcuffs. As the two began building trust with one another, they began to divulge more intimate details of their lives, Warren informing Latham that his father had recently died unexpectedly in a tragic auto accident. His beloved father was 85 years old when he lost control of his vehicle, crashing into a tree outside of the English village of Longcott in Oxfordshire. The tragedy left 56-year-old Andrew Warren completely devastated. Proceeding the death of his father, Warren too became suicidal. This led him to embark on the bizarre quest of actually seeking out an individual who might be willing to assist him with his suicide online. The death of Warren's father wouldn't be the only motivating factor, fueling his growing desire to die, however. For Warren, the idea was oddly sexually integrated with the concept of death as well, and it wouldn't be long before he found out that he'd been in contact with the perfect candidate to help him carry out his plan. Professor Wyndham Latham you see, Wyndham just so happened to also share the same depraved infatuation with murder, suicide, and death, all three topics just as equally intertwined with sexual arousal and gratification. The men corresponded for months on end in various chat rooms, as well as on the Grinder app. Chat logs and exact transcripts of these conversations have never been released to the public. The only specifics readily available as it pertains to this facet of the case are Warren's Grinder account usernames. The names of his profiles used included Gone Forever 2015 and Anything Goes and No Limits. Both men went about their daily lives working at their separate universities, a continent apart from one another. No one knew what the two had been secretly planning in private, including Andrew Warren's then-boyfriend of five years, Martin Grant. Warren and Latham were living two separate lives, one with their existing partners and the other on the internet. But it wouldn't take long at all for internet sexting to transition into something wildly out of hand after Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren decided to finally meet up in person for the first time. In 2017, what could have been initially viewed as disturbing yet harmless behavior on the internet eventually turned into a very terrifying real-life scenario. After several weeks of constant back and forth, Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren had finally solidified a plan. 
they arranged to take a trip to Australia together. Once there, they agreed to get married and set a plan into motion that would ultimately leave both men killed at the hands of a local man, whom they were set to hire. The mysterious Australian native had been in contact with both Latham and Warren for quite some time. The three had met in a similar chat room, where details were solidified, and the individual agreed to lend both men his, quote, services. The deal was that the man would murder both Warren and Latham as part of a perplexing plot to end their own lives. Remember, not only were these men genuinely suicidal, this was a long-thought-out fantasy of theirs, one that both men were gaining a tremendous sense of sexual gratification from. After eventually saying their vows and enjoying a brief erotic vacation, Wyndham and Andrew were to be murdered. As it turns out, the man set to commit these homicides eventually got cold feet when Latham produced some very real and concerning evidence which indicated their sincere intent to hop the next plane to Australia. It's unknown if any plane tickets were actually ever purchased. Nevertheless, it was this moment that all communication ceased between the three men. Neither Latham nor Warren ever heard from the Australian man again. Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren grew discouraged. When Plan A fell apart, the men were determined to figure out an alternative in fulfilling their morbid dream of killing one another. Andrew Warren was falling deeper into a state of despair, now dealing with the emotional distress of his sister Tracy's alcoholism. Warren had been living with Tracy in their childhood home back in England, which was now absent of their beloved father. Andrew was becoming increasingly anxious to carry out the plan, and his thoughts of suicide were becoming more profound than ever. Wyndham Latham's depression hadn't subsided in the slightest either. It was time to try something different, they thought. Having successfully hidden their online relationship from their significant others to this point, Latham proposed a new plan. He would purchase Warren a single ticket from the UK to Chicago, with the original purpose of killing one another still intact as their main objective. Warren gleefully accepted Latham's offer, and an international plane ticket was eventually purchased. As excitement and anticipation grew inside of Warren, with each passing moment leading up to his eventual departure, the big day would finally come. On Monday, July 24th, 2017, Andrew Warren would leave his home country for the very first time to meet his online lover, Wyndham Latham. Warren hadn't informed anyone that he was leaving. He'd simply packed up and left and was now sitting 40,000 feet in the sky while on his way to O'Hare International Airport in Chicago, Illinois. After a nine-hour flight, compliments of Wyndham Latham, the two men would finally meet outside of the chat room and in real life. As Wyndham picked Andrew up from his terminal at the airport, the two joyfully drove away, but even they weren't aware of the events that were soon to unfold. The blueprint of their prearranged deaths would soon take an even more deranged and unexpected turn. When their murder-suicide pact deteriorated for a second time, Latham and Warren would soon become desperate, and this time, it wouldn't be just the two of them facing their own mortality, but another unsuspecting victim as well. Back in England the following day on Tuesday, July 25th, 2017, Andrew Warren's sister Tracy became concerned. She hadn't heard from her brother and couldn't seem to get in touch with him. It was very unlike Andrew to not come home, 
or at least communicate his whereabouts to his sister, as they were quite close. After several failed attempts to locate him, Tracy decided to contact the local police. A missing persons alert was issued shortly thereafter. Meanwhile, back in Chicago, Andrew Warren and Wyndham Lathan were enjoying each other's company, engaging in casual drinking, drug use, and long-awaited sexual interaction. Latham had booked Warren a hotel room directly across the street from his luxury downtown condo, where the two proceeded to inject crystal meth intravenously and have sex. At some point later that day, the two men decided to take a five-hour drive to St. Louis, Missouri, in order to purchase a firearm. Their new plan was to buy a gun. Latham would then cut Warren open with a knife he'd brought along on the trip, leaving him to bleed out. But before Warren perished from the fatal wound, he had planned to shoot and kill Latham. In their drug-induced frenzy, this absurd scheme seemed to make perfect sense to both men. It would become evident rather quickly, however, that obtaining a firearm legally would be more difficult than either of them had accounted for. Even as two intelligent men, both working in some facet of higher education, it seems neither Latham nor his English counterpart, Andrew Warren, had done their due diligence in researching gun laws in the state of Missouri. Though the state doesn't require background checks, a license, or even a permit to purchase a firearm, in St. Louis, you do need to present proof of residency. Regardless, Latham and Warren had reached yet another roadblock and were turned away. Fresh out of ideas of what to do next, the two men got into their vehicle and began their long road trip back to Chicago. It was during this car ride when yet another plan would be devised. There's still much controversy surrounding who exactly said what in regards to the events that would unfold next. Regardless of who came up with the idea, Plan C was born on the trip back to Chicago, and Andrew and Wyndham would certainly both play crucial roles. It was decided that if they couldn't kill themselves, perhaps they should kill someone else. The two agreed this alternative would work just fine in quenching their insatiable thirst for death in a plan where they could finally carry out their prolonged desire of conjoining sexual fantasy with death. The most tragic part of what happens next in this case is that their victim shared no similar interest in ending his own life, nor would he have the opportunity to plan for it as these two men had. Someone had to die that night. They'd come too far and their minds were already made up. Soon after crossing back into the state of Illinois, it wouldn't be long before another man was involuntarily subjected to the two men's murderous plot. And sadly, he never even saw it coming. July 27, 2017. The two men had made it back to Chicago. Andrew Warren was in his hotel room directly across the street from Wyndham Latham's condo at the Grand Plaza at 540 North State Street. Latham happened to be with another man during this time inside of his 10th floor apartment overlooking the city skyline. He was settling in for the evening with his then-boyfriend, Trenton Cornell Duranlo. This is where the details get a bit hazy in terms of what happens next, depending on who you hear it from. But here's what we know. In the late hours of the 26th, and into the early morning hours of July 27th, Latham and Trenton were engaging in consensual sex. The two had been consuming alcohol and methamphetamines. Sometime before 4.30 a.m., Latham texts Warren and tells him to come over. 
At approximately 4.30, Warren crosses the street from his hotel and is captured on surveillance video entering the building at 540 North State Street. He then proceeds on his way to room 1004, Latham's luxury condo unit. Once there, Warren joins Latham in the bathroom, where he begins to remove his clothing. Both men, now standing nude together in the restroom, begin shooting up crystal meth together, injecting the drug directly into one another's veins. Trent is still on the bed. Though it's unclear how Warren's presence was declared or made known to Trenton, it is understood that the three men then began engaging in a consensual threesome, the act then escalating to the presence of knife play, a form of BDSM which introduces concepts of fear and danger during a sex act. This is something Latham spoke of online constantly. We do know that this encounter originally started off as consensual, after learning the three had agreed upon a mutual safe word, mosquito. Used in the event that the participants feel at any point that things were getting out of hand or beyond a level of comfort, any one of the three men could say the word mosquito to abruptly end the interaction. Eventually, two blades were introduced, but when gentle and sensual drags of the prop knives soon turned to vicious violent stabbing motions from very real weapons, the word mosquito would not be of any help. After the act was finished, showers were taken and blood was washed off, but only two men would walk out of that condominium building alive. High on crystal meth in the early morning hours of July 27th, Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren were captured on surveillance video leaving the building together. Later that evening, an anonymous phone call was made to the front desk of the River North condo building. The male voice on the other end reportedly saying something to the effect of, There may have been a crime committed in room 1004. You need to check it out. The caller was asked to identify himself, yet refused. He then hung up. Immediately following the ominous tip, the individual at the front desk promptly called 911. By the time police arrived, Latham and Warren were nowhere to be found. But the scene inside Latham's 10th floor apartment was not one officers could have mentally prepared for. Seconds after stepping foot inside that unit, authorities were met with a scene so gruesome it was almost too brutal to comprehend. Police wouldn't arrive until 8.30 p.m. the evening of July 27th. After knocking with no answer, they eventually obtained a master key from the property management firm, gaining entry into the condo. As they entered the unit, they noticed a man lying face down on the floor next to the bed, covered in blood. Quote, blood everywhere, was one officer's precise recollection of the scene. Please leave, they have a DOA there at 540 North State. A DOA or dead on arrival alert can be heard over the emergency radio. The victim, 26-year-old Trenton Cornell Duranlo, had been deceased for several hours by this point. He was stabbed a total of 78 times, with multiple sharp force injuries to his back, chest, and neck area. His throat had also been severely lacerated, leaving him nearly decapitated. Upon further investigation, police found a six-inch drywall knife with a broken blade inside of a nearby trash can, as well as a second knife near the bathroom sink. Both were covered in blood. It soon became evident that the anonymous phone call 
was made by none other than Wyndham Latham himself. Warrants were swiftly put together for both men's arrests, and the two suspects' passports were flagged in a bid to stop either one of the men from traveling outside of the United States. Alerts to local media went out as well, deeming Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren armed, dangerous, and wanted for murder. Under the influence of hard drugs, the two somehow managed to rent a vehicle, a gray Hyundai sedan. Warren and Latham were now on the run and had a good 15-hour head start before they decided to notify police of the body inside of the college professor's apartment. But what they'd do along their getaway route was perhaps even more bizarre than the murder itself. Directly following the killing, the two suspects drove to the Lake Geneva Public Library in Wisconsin roughly 80 miles from the scene of the crime. Here, Latham would make a mysterious $1,000 cash donation to the library in Trenton Cornell Duranlo's name. This donation, of course, occurred before Trenton's body had even been discovered and prior to any media coverage going live on television covering the murders. The public hadn't yet been made aware to be on the lookout for Latham or Warren, though once it became clear to the Lake Geneva Library staff just who these men were, they quickly informed police. But by then, they were already long gone. But the tip resulted in the first real lead, giving police the first known location of both men after they had allegedly murdered Trenton. As they continued along their cross-country escape route, Latham also donated just over $5,600 to a Chicago LGBTQ health center the day of the murders. These peculiar actions left police simply stunned. It turned out uh, the individual they wished that donation for uh, was a homicide victim. I've never seen where uh, suspects in a homicide uh, would make a donation in the victim's name. The bizarre donations didn't give authorities too much to work with in terms of where the men may be heading next. By the next morning, the case was gaining traction in national headline news. Yet Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren were still very much at large and considered armed and dangerous. It's a twisted, shocking story. Police doing all they can to catch up with these two men with strong ties to academia, now prime suspects in a most gruesome crime. Friends and family of both the victim and the two men wanted for murder in this case couldn't believe the headlines they woke up to that following morning. Word quickly got around of the murders on both campuses where Latham and Warren were employed. Students and faculty at Northwestern University in particular were left in shock and disbelief. It seems kind of weird that there is a professor here that, you know, uh, would do, like, who would do something like that. I had him uh, give a talk to some students about his research, and uh, he just seemed like a perfectly normal guy. Day three of the manhunt, July 29th, 2017. Back in England, Andrew Warren's sister had received the ugly truth about her brother's potential involvement in a homicide overseas in the United States. She posted a photo of her, Andrew, and their late father together on Facebook with the following caption. Miss Dad and wake up, bruv. Life is too precious to waste. Surely the post was a cry for her brother to turn himself in to the authorities. But as the days passed, the chances of this happening became less and less likely. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., 
the federal investigation of this murder and the search for Andrew Warren and Wyndham Lathan was in full swing. Police tried to communicate with the suspects directly via social media, yet to no avail. Warren and Latham had already both been banned from their respective campuses. Latham's extensive online presence for his academic achievements were already being scrubbed from their existence online. The appropriate public relations measures were being taken, as no reputable source or institute of higher learning could afford to have Latham's name attached to theirs. So they wasted no time in cutting all ties with the tenured professor. This press release from Northwestern University was soon to follow. Northwestern University has terminated the employment of Wyndham Latham, an associate professor of microbiology and immunology. Latham was terminated for the act of fleeing from police when there was an active arrest warrant out for him. Latham, who had been a faculty member since 2007, continues to be banned from entering the Northwestern University campuses. Be that as it may, Latham and his sidekick Warren had much more to worry about than finding new jobs, as neither one of them would most likely never have that opportunity again. They now had a life in prison surely awaiting them both, but the men still weren't showing any signs of coming forth, willingly at least, and their whereabouts were still unknown. Would they inevitably take the easy way out, finally taking their own lives before being brought to justice as had been their plan all along? Only time would tell. After several painstaking days into the manhunt for Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren, it wouldn't be a small break in the case, but a crack that would reveal a shred of humanity, at least on the surface, presented in cell phone video format. Suspect Wyndham Latham had texted a video-recorded confession to his friends and family. In the video, he seemed to be remorseful, but no amount of remorse would give 26-year-old Trenton his life back. Segments of the video were said to have stated the following. He trusted me completely and felt safe with me, and I betrayed that. I took that all away when I killed him. It was the biggest mistake of my life. I regret it with every fiber of my being. This video, of course, would rightfully be handed over to authorities, and eventually to U.S. Marshals. For as sorry as Latham said he was in the video, neither he nor Andrew Warren had turned themselves in yet. But after nine long days on the run, Andrew Warren would voluntarily walk into a police station in the Bay Area of San Francisco, California, on August 4, 2017. Over 2,100 miles away from where the murder had taken place back in Chicago, Warren had finally given up. He told police he was tired of running and that the burden of killing had weighed heavily on his conscience. Warren was allegedly dropped off at the police station by his accomplice, Wyndham Latham. And sure enough, roughly 20 miles away in Oakland, California that very same day, Latham would eventually turn himself in as well. The two men were held without bond as news of their arrests spread rapidly. The family of Trenton Cornell Duranlo could finally breathe a sigh of relief, knowing at minimum their loved one's killers were now off the streets. Yet so many questions remained. No one in connection with Trenton knew either one of these two men, while both Warren and Latham awaited their fate in their respective jail cells, 
Arrangements would soon be made to have them both extradited back to Chicago. Trenton Cornell Duranlo was a young cosmetologist. He was known as energetic, talented in his craft, and loved by nearly everyone he came into contact with. He enjoyed playing video games and watching anime films when he wasn't busy working. He trusted people. In the case of Wyndham Latham, that trust had been exploited, ultimately tragically costing him his life. Trent's biological mother died when he was very young, at the tender age of just six years old, but he was cared for by his foster family deeply. He grew up in the small town of Lennon, just east in Michigan. He graduated from high school in 2011, eventually earning his cosmetology certificate. He bounced around a bit like most do after high school, trying to find his way. But he eventually landed in Chicago, where he was attempting to build out his clientele at a local salon. His friends say that Trent had sometimes relied on places to stay early on. We're only left to believe this is when he'd met Wyndham Latham, sometime around 2016. The relationship between the two was virtually unknown by everyone in Trent's social circles. Understandably, the news of Trenton's murder came as a great shock to those who loved him so deeply. A couple weeks after Andrew Warren had turned himself in, he was approached with a plea deal. If he would give a full in-depth confession to his involvement in the murder, as well as agree to testify against Latham in court, he'd be presented with a lesser sentence. With the advice of his court-appointed counsel, Warren would indeed take that deal. On August 20th, 2017, Assistant State Attorney Natasha Toller would relay the details of Andrew Warren's in-depth confession directly to the media, though this version of events would later change at Wyndham Latham's recollection. Regardless, we warn you that what Andrew Warren claims to be true is nothing short of horrifying. After the victim went to sleep in Defendant Latham's apartment, Latham texted Defendant Warren that it was time to kill Trenton and to come to his apartment. At approximately 4.30 a.m. on July 27, Defendant Warren is seen on video entering the lobby of Defendant Latham's apartment building. When inside Defendant Latham's apartment, Defendant Latham escorted Defendant Warren into the bathroom. Defendant Latham checked to be sure that the victim was still asleep and returned to the bathroom where Defendant Warren was waiting. Defendant Latham returned with a shopping bag that contained a Stanley drywall knife saw with a six-inch blade that was still in its packaging. Defendant Latham opened the packaging and took out the knife in front of Defendant Warren. Defendant Latham then gave Defendant Warren a cell phone and told him to record the murder as the victim was being stabbed by Latham. Both defendants exited the bathroom. The victim was still asleep in the bedroom in his underwear. Defendant Latham entered the bedroom while Defendant Warren stood in the doorway with a cell phone in hand. Defendant Latham then stabbed the victim over and over in the neck and chest area. The victim woke up and began to scream and fight back. Defendant Latham was unable to control the victim and Latham began yelling, help me, help me, to Defendant Warren. Defendant Warren walked into the bedroom and placed his hands over the victim's mouth to stop him from screaming. The victim bit Defendant Warren's hand and flailed his arms in the struggle. To silence the victim and stop him from moving, Defendant Warren struck the victim in the head with a heavy metal wing. 
Defendant Latham continued to stab the victim, and Defendant Warren left the room and retrieved two kitchen knives. When Defendant Warren returned with the knives, he found the victim lying on the floor. Both defendants then knelt over the victim and continued to stab him. Defendant Warren used so much force on the victim that he broke the blade of one of the knives he used. The victim's last words to Defendant Latham were, Wyndham, what are you doing? The gruesome nature of Warren's account is incomprehensible. Trenton's alleged last words are beyond painful to hear, but surely nowhere near the physical pain he must have suffered before meeting his untimely death. The autopsy and toxicology report eventually revealed the presence of alcohol, amphetamines, and methamphetamine in Trenton Cornell Duranlo's system. His jugular vein was completely severed. There were also 26 stab wounds to his back, 21 stab wounds to his chest and abdomen, 14 stab wounds to his right hand and wrist area, and seven defensive wounds to his left hand and wrist. Both of his lungs were also punctured. There was also significant damage to his colon, diaphragm, spleen, and to both the left and right sides of his liver. His aorta had been torn from one of the blades. His pulmonary artery had also been lacerated. Trenton Cornell Duranlo had little to no chance of surviving the attack the minute it was underway. From the evidence, there was seemingly no way one man could have inflicted this much damage. But that is what Wyndham Latham's defense would ultimately claim. Before his extradition back to Chicago, Wyndham Latham's attorney would address the swarming media outlets who desperately hoped to gain any information they could as to how and why this horrible crime could have taken place in the first place. My name is Ken Wine and I represent Wyndham Latham. Since the beginning of this case, the defense has received dozens of phone calls and letters in support of Dr. Latham. These are from friends and colleagues who have known him for decades and they all describe him as a kind, intelligent, and gentle soul and a loyal and trusted friend. What he is accused of is totally contrary to the way he has lived his entire life. That being said, this today is a first step in a long process. At this time, it is critical to remind everyone, the press and the public alike, that all criminal cases are tried in courtrooms and not the press. The reasons for this are obvious. Speculation and rumor have no place in a fact-finding process and work to deny defendants a right to a fair trial. All of us want the truth to come out, but it will take time and patience. Please, I urge you to be patient, suspend your judgment, and let the facts come out in the courtroom as the Constitution intends. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the press wouldn't get much here, other than a reminder that this man's client was supposedly a, quote, kind and gentle soul. Thankfully, it wouldn't be up to him to decide Wyndham Latham's fate. But instead, a decision would be left up to a jury of his peers. Latham would be advised by his counsel, surprisingly, to enter a plea of not guilty. Here is one of his attorneys, Adam Shepard, explaining that plea, roughly one month after the murder. Today was the arraignment. A plea of not guilty was entered on Dr. Latham's behalf. Each side tendered discovery motions to the other, and the state produced some discovery to the defense today. We just asked the public to keep an open mind 
Our client is adored by his friends and colleagues, and as his plea of not guilty indicates today, he's presumed to be innocent. Thank you. He is polite, cooperative, a total gentleman, cooperative with all court staff, jail staff, his lawyers, and he, he is polite, that is his demeanor. In jail, he's taken inmates under his wing, he's teaching them biology, he's involved in, in religious and spiritual programs, he's keeping himself occupied by reading numerous books, he's staying in touch with family and friends, the support continues to pour in on his behalf. I, the state's proffer at the bond hearing was based largely apparently on the word of Andrew Warren, who, according to the proffer, is a self-confessed murderer. So that is to be viewed with great suspicion. Our client, we believe to be a very credible person, and we believe as the facts unfold, that'll become evident to the public. It's obvious that Latham's attorneys were doing their best to humanize their client and paint him in a positive light, a light that perhaps all who knew Wyndham Latham did indeed see at one time or another before he was accused of this heinous act. Andrew Warren's account would naturally make it seem as though Wyndham was the mastermind behind the entire plan. In 2019, Warren successfully entered into the offered plea agreement and was subsequently sentenced to 45 years in prison in exchange for his agreed-upon testimony against Latham, which was to be conducted at trial to be held at a later date. But before that trial would ever take place, Latham requested to be granted release from prison, not once, but twice. He attempted to do so in April of 2020, and again in June of that same year. The reasoning behind his request? Latham's attorneys sought their client's release under the belief that he'd be able to assist in research efforts towards the fight against COVID-19. They claimed that with Latham's vast expertise, he could be of great value to the community during the pandemic and potentially even help to find a, quote, cure for COVID-19. Needless to say, the recently terminated scientist and professor was denied both times. Latham's murder trial would officially begin on Monday, September 27, 2021. And as planned, Andrew Warren would indeed take the stand against his former partner in crime. During his testimony, Warren blamed a troubled childhood for his declined mental state at the time of the murder. While he admitted his role to the act, he continued to point the blame on Latham, reiterating that he simply blindly and foolishly followed his lead. When confronted with the obvious question to which everyone wanted the answer, why he had taken part in the murderous fantasy plot to begin with, he responded, quote, I don't know why. I'll never know why. Warren's attorneys would go on to state that their client felt pressured by Wyndham Latham and that he felt he had to follow through with Latham's premeditated attack. They also made note of a cut that was present on Latham's hand at the time of his arrest, suggesting that he was, in fact, the main culprit, hanging on to the knives during the murder. The cell phone video sent by Latham to his parents and friends, where he allegedly confessed to the crime, was indeed the most damning evidence presented against him. On top of that video, state prosecutors would call a very impactful witness to the stand, a man by the name of Jeremy Zaloon. A year and a half before the murder, Latham had met up with Zaloon on a date, arranged through the Grinder app. Zaloon testified that Latham had mixed Coca-Cola with the drug GHB, a sedative commonly used to treat narcolepsy, 
and offered it to the man as they lay on his bed. Zaloon claimed that he did not consume the drink, stating to the jury, quote, I didn't know how much G was in there. Too much G will kill someone. During this encounter, the two eventually engaged in consensual sex. But while doing so, Wyndham Latham allegedly brandished a knife. Saloon claimed that Latham asked him to pretend like he was stabbing him during intercourse, all as part of a sick and twisted role-play fantasy. Saloon told the jury that when he declined to offer to engage in the, quote, knife play, Latham reacted threateningly, causing him to become immediately fearful. He told me I would leave when he said I could. I watched him basically turn from Fred Flintstone to Freddy Krueger in about 30 seconds. Saloon reportedly escaped this encounter when he pulled a gun on the professor, thinking quickly on his feet before fleeing the scene. Latham's attorneys would attack Jeremy Zaloon's character via cross-examination, also bringing into question his credibility. They made sure to note that Mr. Zaloon had not reported this incident until over one year later, once Latham was already on trial for the murder of Trenton Cornell Duranlo. Latham's attorneys also brought up the fact that Zaloon had prior convictions for burglary and identity theft, pinning him as a criminal rather than a trustworthy or viable source. Yet even without Jeremy Zaloon's testimony, there was even more damaging evidence against Latham for the court to consider. The prosecution presented evidence that in the days leading up to the murder, Wyndham Latham had completely wiped his iPad and laptop computer. He had also disabled the GPS location services across all of his devices. The state also presented the extensive chat logs, not only between Latham and Warren, but between other users online as well. A reoccurring theme across all of these documents always came back to Wyndham Latham's fantasy of combining murder with sex. Another crucial piece of evidence in terms of motive was Andrea Hall's testimony. Hall was a colleague of Latham's who oversaw the lab he'd been working in at Northwestern University. Remember the audio clip of Latham expressing his newfound excitement over the new job opportunity in Paris? I'm currently at Northwestern, but I'm actually relocating the lab to the Institut Pasteur in Paris in January, so I will be one of you Europeans shortly. Well, Latham never got that job. He was inevitably passed up for an internal candidate. He fully anticipated the move overseas and was already making arrangements to work and live in France. Hall took the stand explaining to the jury that after Latham was rejected for the position at Pasteur Institute in Paris, France, his behavior began to change drastically. A few days after the murder, Halls tells the court she received an email from Latham which stated the following. I have to put you in a terrible spot. I am so sorry for everything that has happened and what is to come. The prosecution inferred that Latham's failure to achieve his lifelong goal of researching in Paris was the catalyst that led to a depressive state and his subsequent murderous behavior. When it came time for Latham's attorneys to offer up a rebuttal, they tried to pin the murder entirely on Warren. The defense attempted to convince the jury that Latham hadn't taken part in the murder of Trenton at all, but rather that he cowered in the bathroom, sitting in a fetal position, crying, while Andrew Warren viciously murdered Trenton. Latham's story was that Warren killed Trenton out of jealousy. He told the jury that during the threesome, Latham had rejected Warren romantically. Warren then allegedly became so enraged that he proceeded to stab Trenton repeatedly. 
Latham said up until this point, the three men had originally engaged in consensual knife play and meth use, otherwise known as chemsex in the United Kingdom gay community. On the stand, Latham characterized the murder as, quote, a kinky meth-fueled threesome gone horribly wrong. After suggesting that he was devoid of committing any act of violence as it pertained to the murder of Trenton Cornell Duranlo, Latham was asked if he'd tried to stop Warren from attacking the victim, to which Latham replied during his testimony, I didn't try to stop Andrew from hurting him. I didn't. I hid in the bathroom like a coward. The murder trial would ultimately last nine days. The exact number of days that Wyndham Latham and Andrew Warren would evade the police on a nationwide manhunt after killing an innocent 26-year-old man. On October 7, 2021, after less than two hours of deliberations, the jury had reached a verdict, and Wyndham Latham was found guilty of first-degree murder. His official sentencing is set to take place later on this year. In the end, both Andrew Warren and Wyndham Latham would be held accountable for the murder of Trenton Cornell Duranlo, though there is much debate whether or not the sentences are on par with or match the severity of the crime. Warren only received 45 years in prison, while Latham is facing anywhere from 20 years to life. And while we may never know the exact details of how this murder took place, in the early morning hours of July 27th in Wyndham Latham's luxury condo, one thing seems abundantly clear. Both men were active participants. Wyndham Lathan threw all of his hard work away while ending an innocent young man's life in the process. It just goes to show you that neither wealth nor a resume chalk-filled with professional accomplishments excludes any individual from potentially committing violent acts by any means. For Wyndham Latham, it only meant he was able to hide these desires a bit easier. But even the whitest of lies will eventually be exposed. And the more sinister one's secrets are, the harder they are to keep hidden. It's just senseless, tragic, and extremely sad that two men's secret deviant sexual fantasies, which blurred the lines between sex, drugs, and death, ultimately led to 26-year-old Trenton Cornell Duranlo's murder, no matter the plan and no matter the safe word. <laughs> 